Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. And from WABE in Atlanta, Closer Look continues. I'm Rose Scott. Since the January 6th Capitol attacks of last year, we've had many conversations centered on our nation's democracy. Now, the events of that day might have been shocking to many, but not to Emory University professor and New York Times bestselling author, Carol Anderson. If you were surprised by the insurrection of January 6, 2021, then you haven't been paying attention. There's a different reaction when we saw, blacks saw, George Floyd on January 6th, then whites did. We see January 6th, we're like, oh, okay, yeah, we've seen that before. There was Hamburg. There was Wilmington, North Carolina. And there was Ocoee, Florida. They are all in a line that leads to this insurrection, this attack on American democracy. Were you taught the Hamburg Massacre in school? No. You looked across the river, and all you could see is a jungle. As African-Americans, you got to go find it yourself. you got to go research it, because you're going to miss it because they're not telling you. And that's the original cross with the bullet holes. So you have this church that is providing sanctuary and protection to those who are being chased out of their homes. Now, right. that is biblical. When it happened, he hid underneath a streetcar. And see, he could look underneath the car and see people hitting the street. Here they're sitting in this circle, and they would grab someone, and they'd take them over a hill, and you'd hear a gunshot. We have no idea how many black people were murdered. Some of these records were intentionally not kept, and some things have oddly enough gone missing. Wow, this is an incredible, horrific erasure of a history that must be told, that must be known. That's from a new documentary, I Too. Professor Carol Anderson explores a history of racial violence against black citizens, and she ties it to last year's January 6th Capitol attack. I Too is based on the poem from Langston Hughes. Recently, inside the Atlanta-based Carter Center, I spoke with Professor Anderson after a screening of I2. The following is an edited version of our talk. Let me ask you this, because y'all have heard that before. <laughs> what do people get wrong mostly about defining democracy? Oh, Lord. <laughs> I got a good one in there. <laughs> 
It's the battle that we're having right now in this nation where you have legislators forbidding the teaching of real American history because what they want is a myth. What they want is this really clean, clear, sanitized narrative that has these, these heroic founding fathers who are basically demigods, if not gods, um, who just like, boom, came up with the idea of democracy, wrote this flawless constitution, and then created this incredible nation all by themselves. And so when you have this historical narrative that has greatness right there, and then you have it being, being this nation being built only primarily by white men, then that becomes foundational for the kinds of warped policies and views that we deal with today that talk about, well, who built this? Who are the makers? Who are the takers? Who is deserving and who is unworthy? And so when you get this, 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 this sanitized history that doesn't want to make people feel uncomfortable, history is uncomfortable. And we have to sit with that discomfort in order that we don't keep replicating these same nasty policies and, 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 and practices over and over and over. And so that's what we get wrong, is that we think that history is a myth and that only white men built this nation. And when you have it that narrow, then it means that when folks are talking about structural inequality, it then gives this, well, what are you talking about? What structural inequality? If you work hard, you too can have the American dream. You clearly don't want to work hard. You clearly want a government handout. And, and so this is what really bad history does. It leads to basically Fox News sound bites. And I'm curious, I think I know, but I'm curious is your response when woven into that answer, folks talk about, well, our, our founding fathers, you know, at the core of what they had in terms of a vision for this nation was, and y'all have heard these words, liberty and equality. Right, and, and so part of what makes this nation this nation is that that language of liberty and equality and the language that we hear of justice, it means that this is an aspirational nation. So part of the problem is that you get these folks who try to treat those aspirations as achievements, as if we've already got democracy, as if we already have liberty and equality and justice. And they don't treat it as aspirations, but it is in those aspirations where you see folks fighting for their freedom. And that is part, that is to me a key element in American democracy, is watching African Americans fight for their equality, watching women fight for their equality, watching indigenous folk fight for their equality, watching immigrants fight for their equality, watching Latinos fight for their equality, watching Asian Americans fight for their equality, watching the LGBTQ community fight for their equality. That is American history, not the sanitized crap that they try to 
stuff down our throats. So it's like when um, one of the men in the church in North Carolina said, you know, I didn't even know this, not till 1971. I, I didn't know, and I live here. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, what this, that's why we have to do real history. By show of hands, how many of you were aware of the Wilmington mass- Massacre? Wow, I see just a few. Mm-hmm. What about Hamburg? Wow, that, that number's dwindling. And what about the 1919, 1920, those riots? Wow. Okoye. Yeah. Wow. That's not lost on you when you see that. No, no. And, and, and so that's why, you know, when you think about Okoye, so much of what was happening in Florida at that time with the passage of the 19th Amendment is that you had the NAACP and other groups mobilizing to organize to get black women registered to vote. And the terror, the white supremacist terror that rained down on the black community in Florida. We focused in on Ocoee, but what was, what was happening was statewide on the black community for daring to believe that they were American citizens, for daring to vote, for daring to believe that the Constitution applied to them. And these were folks, when you think about it, we were just coming out of what was then known as the Great War, the war to make the world world safe for democracy. And so that irony was not lost on black folk. How many Hamburgs and Okoyes are out there that we still don't not even know about. And that is why history is so important. Because to have these folks who are doing the work, who are uncovering these documents, who are uncovering these stories, and then finding ways to get this out into the public. Because when you have really strong, good history, then you're having a very different conversation about who we are and how we got here and what we need to do in order to be better, to do better, to move forward. Before we move forward a little bit more, let's go back then, because I'm curious where Carol Anderson's thoughts were going on January 6th of last year. (laughs) January 6th of 2021. I looked at that mess, and I said, this is white rage. This is, for, for months we had the lie of massive rampant voter fraud, and that lie had been targeted at cities that had sizable black communities. And what you then saw with a series of, of lawsuits and a series of fake electors was an attempt to overthrow that election, to nullify. This was about voter nullification, nullifying the votes of black folk nullifying the votes of Hispanics, nullifying the votes of Asian Americans, nullifying the votes of young folk. And so when I saw that, I was like, Lord, this is Wilmington. This is Wilmington. And what happened in Wilmington was that no one was held accountable for that violence. No one was held accountable for overthrowing a duly elected government. And you had the legitimization of that overthrow as the governor was like, well, howdy, mayor, as this is the guy who had had spearheaded the massacre, Mm -hmm. the coup. And so when you have a structure around that validates 
and legitimizes the illegitimate. This is the road to January 6th. And we can't do that dance again. You talk about the strategy behind the massacre in Wilmington. Then you're saying there are also parallels drawn to a strategy behind January 6th, which may not necessarily didn't start on January 6th. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the parallels, when you think about it, get ready to get political. On a kilo of pure, uncut white supremacy. <laughs> Birtherism was the delegitimization of a black president. That's how he rose to political prominence, was on birtherism, demanding to see this black man's birth certificate. Now, let me be really doggone clear right now. It doesn't matter where he was born. He could have been born on Mars. That wouldn't have made him a Martian. Your citizenship for the United States comes through your mother. And as long as his mother is an American citizen, it doesn't matter where she gave birth. So demanding to say, well, he was born in Kenya, so he can't be an American. <sighs> then you have coming down that escalator talking about Mexicans are rapists and criminals. Then you have the Muslim ban because Muslims are all terrorists. That is nothing but white supremacy. And churning that up, it had been there, as we can see, for a long time. And then having what was called the Southern Strategy, which happened after 1960, the 1964 election and 1965 with the Voting Rights Act, where you had the Republicans wooing those Southern Democrats into the Republican Party. Because the Southern Democrats were like, yo, we don't get with this civil rights stuff. Black folks having civil rights? Nah, we're not doing that. And the Republicans saw an opportunity to break the solid Democratic South and pick up congressional representatives and governors and political power in the South by playing to the anti-civil rights bent of the Southern Democrats. And so as you saw the Southern Democrats being wooed into the Republican Party, that toxin of white supremacy just took over the Republican Party. You know, because it was that thing where it's the hubris where, oh, no, we can handle this. We can get what we need. And we don't have to, like, we can still be us. <laughs> and the white supremacist said, nah, son, that's not how this works. And you saw the moderate Republicans being moved out of the Republican Party. And the party moved so far to the right. And that movement of being so far to the right, Trump tapped into that. So he didn't create it. He tapped into it and rode that thing to power. Something that I'm, oh, by the way, we will leave time for you all to ask questions as well. But, uh, Professor, something that's always intriguing to me is the mindset uh, of the voter right before a big election. And I ask a lot of political science professors this question in terms of the, the, the characteristics, the mindset of a voter. And they always talk about how it's, it's strategic. It's been building up. And whether it was in 2016 or in even all these periods that you incredibly revealed here. 
it's building into the mindset of, of these folks, mostly obviously white here, that democracy, their democracy is going to be taken. Something that the nation was founded on, used in a sense against them for the fear of blacks who are fighting for democracy. The great replacement theory. I've heard that. Mm-hmm. I think Tucker Carlson said it 400 times the last time they counted. And that great replacement theory says that the changing demographics in the United States will push out the natural place of white dominance in this society. So it will push out uh, whites from having political power. It will push out whites from having economic power. It will push out whites from having social, cultural dominance. And where we are right now in America is in a battle with these two visions of what American democracy could be. One is a vision that is what I call a Heronvoke democracy, where you have a small strata of whites with enormous power and a vast rightless labor pool. And all of the resources generated from that vast rightless labor pool eddy up to that small strata of whites. But part of the trick is that you convince a larger share of whites that they too will benefit from having all of those resources eddy up to them. But that's not how this thing works. It is a small strata. Then you have the other vision. And that vision is that multiracial, multi-ethnic, multi-religious democracy that is vibrant, that sees a place for all of us that sees that there are the resources for all of us, that understand that when you have people living into their fullness, not having to deal with oppression and injustice, what was it? Uh, Living my life like it's golden. I mean, I I won't sing, y'all. But that is what you begin to see. Quoting Jill Scott, look at you. I sure did, didn't I? (laughs) Is that you have this vision, and that is what this struggle is right now. It is that vision between this Heronvoke democracy and a truly vibrant American democracy, a truly vibrant United States of America, where the resources aren't figuring out how do we lock up folk, How do we criminalize women's reproductive freedom? How do we criminalize the LGBTQ community? Instead, it's like, how do we have folks being able to live into their fullness? And so for me, what what you saw in this film is like where in in North Carolina, where you had the Fusionist Party, They had a vision of a multiracial, vibrant democracy. And white supremacy reared up and said, oh, no, we're not having this. And wiped the fusionists out, slaughtered black folks left and right. In Hamburg, you had black soldiers parading down Market Street on the 4th of July. And you had two white men who were just angry that black men were in uniform with weapons, 
parading? No, we're not having that. And the result was slaughter. You know, the result was, I mean, I think about the hubris of this. I keep using that word, but the hubris of it, where you have absolutely no doggone authority, and you're going to go to folks who are state troops and say, give me all of your weapons. (laughs) (laughs) And after the slaughter in Hamburg, President Ulysses S. Grant said, when I look at these states, because he had just dealt with the Colfax massacre in Louisiana and the U.S. Supreme Court decision that uh, you could not have federal law against white domestic terrorism. Mm-hmm. And President Grant said, what all of these states have in common is not Christianity. It is not civilization. It is the right to kill Negroes without any accountability, without any consequences for your stature in this society. Now think about that as a predicate, as a basis for a government. And so this is again what we're seeing here in this battle, this vision of what democracy is and what it could be. Our conversation with Professor Carol Anderson continues after this. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. We return to our conversation with Emory University professor of African-American studies, Carol Anderson. It's about her new documentary, I Too. Professor Anderson explores a history of racial violence against black citizens and ties it to last year's January 6th Capitol attack. Let's shift for a moment and talk about how this came about. Um, You love to tell this story, but it's all right. How did it come about? Yeah. Judy. Judith Goldstein, she, she called me up. She said, Carol, you are such a good historian. <laughs> but, you know, books. I mean, really, books. <laughs> and I was like, I am so busy. No, no, no. I was Amy Winehouse all the way through this thing, right? <laughs> And she kept calling because she is the one who will not be denied. (laughs) And we started talking, and it just started making sense. Mm -hmm. And then she hooked me up with Tom and Tony, and we started talking. And we started talking about patriotism. And at first, we were thinking about it in terms of military service, because my father was career military. 
and I knew the crap he had had to deal with. But then as we talked, I said, you know, patriotism, fighting for this democracy is more than being in the military. It's the folks who stand in line for 12 hours to vote because they are going to have their say in who their representatives will be. That's patriotism. It, it's the folks who teach their kids in these schools and ensure that the schools can function, who demand that the schools function. That's patriotism because we know what a quality education means for a thriving, vibrant democracy. So when you're beginning to think about the, the realms of what patriotism looks like, it really is multifaceted. And so, yeah, this film came about because Judy is the woman who will not accept the word no. <laughs> Was there a place in history you wanted to get into this, but y'all just didn't have the time? Yeah, we really wanted to go up to Detroit. So you, you heard me giving a piece of a lecture in class on Ossian Suite, um, because here you have a black man who came out of the violence in Florida, um, then was in Washington, D.C. He, he came out of a very poor family. So it has that arc of the American dream. You know that story where you come from nothing and you just work really hard. And so coming out of poor Florida, then in Washington, D.C., then he gets his medical degree, goes up to Detroit during the Great Migration, has a beautiful wife and family. But Detroit has residential segregation. And about 25% of the, the homes in what was called the bottoms did not have indoor plumbing. And this is in the 1920s. And Ossian Sweet, he's like, I'm not raising my baby girl up in this. And so he goes to buy a home in a predominantly white neighborhood. And the mob was like, oh, we are being invaded. Now let me be really doggone clear here again. This was a white working class neighborhood. And this black physician is moving into a white working class neighborhood. And what those neighbors saw was that the value of their property was going down because this black man was moving in. And so they were determined to kick him out, drive him out. And the mob formed around. And the figures go somewhere between 300 to 1,000 people around his house and they start throwing rocks. He had called the cops and the cops are just standing there watching. They start, the, the mob starts throwing rocks, starts shattering windows. Ossian Sweet has his family with him, his brothers, and they have their guns. Once the house is attacked, they start shooting. Two white men go down. Then the cops move in and they charge everyone in the house with murder. And watching then how the media got a hold of this and, and was just like, you know, basically they were hunting white folks. They were using their home as a way to hunt white people. No. Yeah. Um, and then watching, it, it took two trials before they were finally found not guilty. 
But the consequences of that, because they had been thrown in these, this nasty butt jail, was, was that the wife died of tuberculosis. The baby girl contracted tuberculosis and died. And Ossian Sweet's brother contracted tuberculosis and died. He eventually committed suicide. So that was a story we wanted to tell, but there was just between chairing the department, <laughs> teaching, um, and everything else, we, we just couldn't squeeze Detroit in there. And we're also in a pandemic as well. Yeah, you know, there was this thing called COVID-19. Yeah, so all of that just conspired to mean that we just couldn't do it. So the best we could do was a snippet in my class. A few times... We see you become very emotional, yes. understandable. Um, and as a producer and director, I know sometimes within the moment, you have to let it breathe, you have to, to let it go, but, but that's authentic. These stories, they touch us, but they're touching you too. Yeah, yeah. I, they, they, it, you know, I lost my poker face at 31. <laughs> so what you see on my face is really what I'm thinking. Um, and, and it's like standing there at the dead ring, at the dead circle, and knowing that you had black men who were in the militia who were forced to deal with having cannon shots coming through their armory and then being hunted down in their homes and dragged to this kill zone where they were, they were taken one by one. You imagine the horror, the terror of that, where you see somebody dragged away, you hear gunshot, and that person doesn't come back, and then they call your name. I mean, that just hit me. It just... Uh, Mahalia Jackson has a song, How I Got Over. My soul looks back and wonders how I got over. And I had that song in my head multiple times as we were as we were filming. Professor, when we started our conversation, I asked you what people get wrong about defining democracy. So we'll, we'll try to end our conversation on a, the other spectrum is that what should people know about what democracy looks like? They're freedom dreams. When you begin to really think through what it would be like to be in a society where you're not worried when the cops pull in behind you, where when you get sick, you can actually afford to get well. When you go to vote, you can actually vote. You know, where it, it is the thing that it could be what you imagine in terms of being able to live into your fullness and having a society around you that values your fullness. That's what we could be. I Too by Langston Hughes. Mm. I'm going to ask you to read this. Will you do that? I too sing America. I am the darker brother, 
They send me to eat in the kitchen when company comes. But I laugh and eat well and grow strong. Tomorrow, I'll be at the table when company comes. Nobody will dare say to me, eat in the kitchen then. Besides, they'll see how beautiful I am and be ashamed. I too am America. Our first question or comment, go ahead. Hi, I gotta take the opportunity to get the opinion of a great mind like yours. So excuse me if I seem ignorant to anyone, but I gotta take the opportunity to hear what your response is. In context of my question, uh, it seems that the titles we use are never true, such as uh, the United States being the divided states, um, such as America never seeming to be the place, but Caucasians in the place. So everyone else, uh, there's Asian American, Afro American, or whatever, you know, Mexican American, whatever uh, Hispanic American that is. But then when it comes to Caucasians, we never say European American. We just say American. And so uh, are we delusional to believe that the original intent of Americans or America is us? Uh, I think that we're always fighting. Um, for what we want it to be. Um, we deserve America because we built it, our ancestors, but we don't own it, and not even half of the population of it. So in our, uh, our quest for justice in, in a country that doesn't have a justice system but a legal system, are we delusional to think that America will ever mean us? Mm. Professor. I love that question. And that is also part of what this fight is about. African Americans have consistently been asking themselves, what is my place here? And so you have seen different answers. You have seen um, an answer to, to, to leave the United States and go to Africa. You, or go to the Caribbean. You have seen answers that deal with finding your own segregated space and building that community there and, and, and trying to keep it to be a, a safe zone. You have seen as well the push to integrate into America. What I see is that after hundreds of years of unpaid labor and building this incredible space, we don't abdicate from that. This is as much ours as any doggone buddy else's. And the real history is knowing that and fighting for it envisioning what it could be, figuring out where the crooked spaces are and straightening them out. We've come this far, and I know sometimes it feels like, Lord, whoa, but we have come this far because of that unrelenting struggle. Take the story of my great-grandfather. 
My great-grandfather was enslaved on a plantation in Tennessee. He fell in love with a woman next door. And my grandfather wanted to be married to her. And so he told his master that he was not going to do any work until he could be with the woman he loved. Now, that is some hard-headed nerve, right? <laughs> you got to think about this. I'm not working until I can be with the woman I love. And so his, his master bought her. They married, and then my great-grandfather worked extra to buy his freedom and hers. And then they got the hell out of Tennessee. <laughs> When you have those stories of resolve and resilience and fury and fire, you don't walk away from that. You know what that resolve, that resilience, that fire, and that fury can actually mean for making this a space where we can all live. When we abdicate, bad things happen. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You good, brother? I am. Oh, yeah. I'm real good. Thank you so much. <laughs> you didn't know what you was going to get, did you? But that was a great question, too. Yes. So I've got a former friend who lives in my head. And the, and, and the fact that he's a former friend sort of fills me with guilt and a sense of failure. Um, because... I feel like, you know, he's, to me, the personification of a particular manifestation of white rage. And I've sort of failed in not figuring out how to fix that. Um, and so I'm wondering if you have any recommendations for how we deal, you know, with current manifestations of white rage. Ooh, y'all getting deep. But you're ready. You got the right one. <laughs> When I used to go out on the road and give talks on white rage, my audiences were overwhelmingly white. And what I discerned from that was that many whites aren't comfortable with the way that this nation is going. They know something's not quite right, and they are seeking knowledge. You have another core that refuse to be educated refuse to learn, refuse to engage. There's really, you can't touch that. It, it, it's like the folks who are, you've got to know you got a problem first before you can get some help. You got to acknowledge you've got a problem. We have a core of folks who will not acknowledge that. Evidence be damned. They are living in a world where, where you have alternative facts. Unfortunately, uh, and, 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 but the, the, the good news is, is that I really believe that the vast majority of Americans want to know good history. They want to know how we got here. They want to engage. They want a nation where you don't have this kind of destabilizing crap that's going on. Crap is the scholarly term. <laughs> 
And, and I, I can't give you a better prescription than that. Your friend's going to want to have to want to know. Once he wants to know, then you can get to him. I mean, I mean, he's just a stand-in for, you know, a whole lot. In my oh, head, yeah. So, so. You know, and one of the things that really happened during the Trump era is that family and friends and neighbors began to see who their family and friends and neighbors really were. And it has just broken apart so many families because the thing that you didn't know was that they revel in being absolutely unacceptable. They love it. And, and there's nothing you can do with that until, you know, it, it, it feels so Darth Vader-ish, right? Welcome to the dark side, Luke. <laughs> and it, it feels that way. And you can't pull them out until they're ready to be pulled out. You should do a documentary Thanksgiving 2016 because <laughs> that was something. Yes. That's a story for a whole other time. I <laughs> just have a question. After watching that film, one, I felt almost ashamed that I wasn't educated enough on some of the things that were there. But then at the conclusion, I was thinking, what am I supposed to feel? Am I supposed to feel hopeful, angry, sad? What what do you hope the takeaway for me and others are after watching this? That we can be better and that we must do better. And that when we see these kinds of disturbances, this kind of racial ideology, racist ideology, taking hold of policy, taking hold of the media, taking hold that we don't acquiesce to it, but we stand up and fight it because we know, we know where that road leads. It leads to a point where we're asking, should I feel ashamed? Should I, I feel exhausted? And we don't want to be ashamed anymore. So that's what I want us to be able to take away from this film is that we have the power to be better, to do better. And we have to exercise that power. We exercise it by the way we live. We exercise it by civic engagement. We exercise it by knowing what the policies are, knowing who's, who's recommending these policies and why. What's behind these policies? What are the implications of these policies? and making some noise, and doing what we have to do to be able to vote. I've got, I'm getting ready to make a plug here. The 2022 midterms, it is going to be absolutely decisive for what kind of nation this is going to be. This is where you're seeing, yes. <laughs> this is where you're seeing the two visions of America. Engage in that process. Don't walk away. Don't think, well, my vote doesn't count anyway because they're going to do what they're always going to do. No. No. Our engagement creates change. Engage in this democracy. Fight for a better vision. Thank you. Yeah. Do you have a question over here? You? Are you still processing? I got you. All right. Over here. 
I was hoping you'd do it so I can get my words together. <laughs> my name is Sylvester Pierce. Thank you so very much for uh, taking the time to put all this together. Um, everyone that had a hand with it as well. Um, you asked how many people knew about the massacres that happened. I think maybe 20 of us in this room raised our hands. Um, you also made very clear, and I thank you so much for saying that there were those who took the time to fight back when those mobs came through. I've worked with some groups um, that needed protection because when they went to vote, there were still mobs that were showing up that were making them turn away. And those who were supposed to protect them stood by and did absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. With everything being documented the way it is, and all of us learned about slavery our entire lives, we rarely, if ever, learned about the revolts and even the revolts that were led by women who um, that were enslaved. If we learned more about the black people that fought back, mm -hmm. if we had documentaries done about black people who fought back, who changed these massacres, who stopped them, the 1906 massacre in Atlanta was stopped because somebody got a shotgun and said, if you come any closer, you're going to die. They turned around and left. Do you think our history now and even our media, our stories, conversations like these, how we're taught in school would be different if that story was told as well? When I was growing up, what we were taught were that, was that slavery wasn't that bad. <laughs> Bring it, child. <laughs> and that Lincoln freed the slaves. And so you grew, you grew up with this notion that black folks just took it. They just accepted their subjugation. Then I started reading. And I went, ooh, ooh, ooh. The resistance was long, hard, and strong, starting with the Middle Passage. Black folks fought back in multiple ways. So we think of, 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 the, of the shooting back. Like, like the, in Christiana, Pennsylvania, the firefight in Christiana was just amazing um, in the early 1850s under the Fugitive Slave Act. And you had a, a white slave owner named Edward Gorsuch, Gorsuch, um, who came up to Pennsylvania to get his property. And there was a community there, Christiana, made up uh, some of fugitive slaves, some of free blacks, and they were like, we're not having this. They had set up a self-defense community. And so when Gorsuch and his, his, his posse came, the community fought back. William Parker, who was one of the key men, so when Gorsuch came up there, Gorsuch was like, I come to get my property. And William Parker said, you see that chair, old man? That's not yours. So even in that language of property, 
He was like, you see that chair? That's not yours. You see that table? That's not yours. And Gorsuch is like, I come to get my property. And Parker, who was a fugitive slave himself, said, I'm going to tell you what, old man, you come up those stairs, once you're up there, you're mine. Ooh. There are those stories. There are also the stories of how the enslaved broke their tools. There's also the stories of the way that the enslaved put rocks instead of cotton in the bags. Sell that. There are multiple ways of resistance. Once we begin to understand this resistance, we begin to understand our own organizing tradition. We begin to understand how we have had our own freedom dreams and our visions about what freedom would look like and what we're going to do to get it. And that's why this kind of abdication doesn't work because we fight. When we know those stories, it is that story when I talked about America is an aspirational nation. That fight to refuse to accept subjugation is about aspirations. It is about finding a place where you can be and breathe, Lord to breathe. And so having those stories in our books, I think would make a world of difference because you wouldn't have children like I grew up thinking that the slaves just took it and Lincoln freed the slaves and black folks didn't do anything only to find out later about this wave of resistance, these wave, this wave of revolts. And also that 10% of the Union Army were, was comprised of black men. Folks were fighting for their freedom. That's how we roll. <laughs> yeah. oh, thank you. But thank you. Thank you for what you continue to do. From the Atlanta-based Carter Center, a conversation with Emory University professor Carol Anderson. That's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Razel, and Pat St. Clair. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. You can always listen to Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.
The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.